Welcome back, everyone, to I Loved This Conversation. My name is Alex Salzberg. I'm an animator, a writer, a teacher, and a podcaster every two weeks. And I guess in between, because I edit and you know, work on it and stuff. This is a podcast where I have conversations with creative people about what is currently going on in their creative lives. My hope is that listening to this podcast feels like you met up with another creative friend and just talked openly about all the things you were interested in and then left feeling inspired and like you learned something. Those great conversations that I've been so lucky to have with the people in my community and my world are what I want to capture and share with you. I'm still in Connecticut. Uh, my wife is finishing up a huge project. It's really, really cool. I should have her on to talk about it sometime. I'm also working on my big project still, and I fluctuate between being exhausted and creatively excited, but I'm getting there. It's, it's going to be done soon, I hope. Uh, via Zoom, I connected with today's guest, my friend, Matt Woodruff, an immunologist at Emory University in Atlanta, who, in addition to the creative work in his job as a scientist, does a lot of writing and outreach and is passionate about science communication, which we'll talk about a lot. I went to college with Matt Woodruff, and I think I'm really lucky. I went to art school, but I went to art school within a larger university at RIT in Rochester, New York. RIT, it's not even really known for the art school. It's, it's known for engineering and science and all those STEM things. And because of that, we were all mixed together. I had my animation classes with my animator friends, but my dorm was such a mix of artists and engineers and scientists and, and other pursuits. And that was such a positive experience. It kept me from entirely being in a visual artist bubble. I love my animator friends. I love animators. But if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll notice that the creative people that I talk to, that that's a really broad category. And I think that really started in college when I would spend time with friends like Matt Woodruff. Matt and I would stay up late and we'd have conversations where I would learn from him about science. I hope he would learn from me about the creative process and about what I was working on, what I was going through. And since college, I've really always sought out friends and kept friendships with people who are not just artists. And I have great friends who work in other fields. And the running theme, and it's a, a theme I kind of, uh, I drive home in this episode, I probably um, lean on it a little too hard. But the, the running theme is that pretty much every pursuit, every career, every passion, every hobby involves creativity. Creativity is such a human thing. And I really think that by having friends who are not just artists has made me a better artist and a better person. And I've learned so much. And I hope that all of you really enjoy my conversation with Matt Woodruff, my old friend, because uh, I learned a lot from it, like I always do when I talk to him, not only about how the science world works and the type of stuff he's working on, but also about the creativity and the creative struggles that are inherent to his path as a scientist. We talked about building a, a brand to sell our ideas. We talk about disconnecting your ego from your ideas when people criticize them. We talk about how important it is to communicate ideas clearly. We talk about building your own toolkit and then 
proving to people that the work you're doing is work that only you can do. It's true for artists and that's true for scientists as well. Um, This is also just like a super interesting conversation to have in 2023. And I think an important one, Matt has a lot to say about the importance of not only clear science communication, but really open and transparent science communication. He really feels that the science community, his science community, could be so much more transparent with all of us in the rest of the public, and that that would actually lead to more trust in science, even though it can be a little bit scary to lift the curtain and show that scientists are kind of like artists, a bunch of imperfect, creative humans coming up with ideas and trying to execute them and share them and prove that they are important. Anyway, I've been like excited about this episode since I recorded a few weeks ago, particularly because I'm excited that a podcast about creativity and creative people is a place where I can bring this kind of conversation into the world and share it. And I'm so excited to share it. And I'm so excited for you to learn from it. So let's meet our guest and hear his connection to me. My name is Matt, uh, Matt Woodruff, and I am a scientist, an immunologist here at Emory, starting my own lab here uh, pretty soon. But we have known each other for quite some time since early college, which actually turns out is almost half a lifetime ago. I was thinking about that uh, the other day. So we've known each other for quite some time, uh, really since freshman year at RIT, when uh, I was routinely visiting your room uh, because our hall was just the worst hall and your hall was a slightly better hall. And then we did the whole sharing an apartment together for a couple of years, which was um, a mess, but a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that our friendship was forged and that hanging out with me was slightly better than being at home. And yeah, we lived together for three years. And actually something I realized last week's episode or the episode right before yours is also with a former roommate of mine. And (laughs) you're sort of a sequel in this like roommate mini series, but I think it actually like reflects well on me that two of my former roommates still want to talk to me years later. So That's true. No, I, I think a lot of people probably can't say that. And yeah, the, we made some really good uh, dinners from prepackaged food yeah. from the corner store downstairs. Yeah. At the time, I remember them seeming really gourmet. I did see pictures of those pop up on my <laughs> computer recently. Those meals looked nasty. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Reflecting on it, uh, it was always the um, sort of fresh pasta rotini things, right? Yeah. Warmed up in a microwave with whatever they had for vegetables, which wasn't much. Sort of fresh. That is a statement that should not have a range. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then the... That should not uh, be a spectrum. And then bread. We we had bread because somebody had a toaster, which was definitely illegal. Yeah. Um, Oh, we had... um, we had in the dorms when I I remember when I lived with you in a dorm room the sophomore year we had like a the dorm version of a commercial kitchen going on with illegal fire hazard cooking devices I think we had a panini press yeah uh, yeah <laughs> um all right well uh after that nice trip down memory lane <laughs> um, uh, I'm gonna open with the big question that I always ask Matt Woodruff what is something you're currently going through in your creative life that's a big question. So I, you know, have been doing a lot of human immunology work. So I have a lot of experimental
experimental techniques uh, floating around in my mind that's really specific to that kind of investigation. Are these techniques that you have learned or some of them like things you've developed or that are your brain children? It's sort of a big combination of both right? You Mm -hmm. kind of develop stuff that you yourself have designed over the years to solve specific problems. You really can think of it like a toolbox. You have this big open-ended question and you have a set of tools that you can use to try to get at those answers. So you're trying to sort of use those tools in a creative way to get towards this larger goal of understanding something that we didn't understand before, for example, about the immune system. So I mentioned that I'm about to start a new lab here at Emory. And, you know, the way that the progression of careers work in science is for a very long time, you are sort of under someone's umbrella, right? So you you leave your undergraduate institution, you go and you work in your PhD, and, you know, your PhD advisor has specific projects that they've had going since before you started the lab. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe you carve out a little section of that, but you're certainly firmly under someone. And then you sort of move to your postdoc work. And you're supposed to be a little more independent, but realistically, that money for experimentation and things are still coming from somebody that you are working ostensibly under. In that environment, you end up doing a lot more of the creative work. You're more responsible for designing experiments and, you know, for sort of developing your project independently. But again, you know, when you go to publish that work, everybody is going to look at the manuscript at the end, and it's going to stick in their mind that your boss was the person that really published it. So everybody develops these tools over their training. And one of the things that you really have to be conscious of when you're leaving your last advisor-run lab and start to branch out on your own, you don't want to be in direct competition with the person that you were just training under, nor do you want to be in competition Mm. with all of the people that you've trained with up until this point. There is a bit of a dance when you're trying to sort of shoot off into independence as to how you're going to take everything that you worked on and synthesize it into a program that is yours, right? Mm. Because the worst thing that you can do, not the worst, but a bad (laughs) thing that you can do is you can accidentally recreate the same program as the lab you just left. And so Mm -hmm. the problem with that is that when people look at your papers in the future, they're not going to look at that as this is something coming from Matt Woodruff. And especially when I'm staying within Emory, right? So right now, there's a lot of thought going into how do I take the ideas that I've developed and the tools that I've developed and apply them in sort of new ways that are more unique to my expertise and, you know, have a little bit more of me in them. And that makes funding opportunities a lot easier. When you go to apply for a grant, people don't want you to be rehashing the ideas that your boss was was investigating. They want you your spin, right? Like, why are you uniquely qualified to do this work? It's a lot of, you know, big picture investigation right now and like how to build my own brand. What's cool, I mean, I I had you on here because I suspect, you know, some people might read the episode description and it's right after like a guy who makes uh, ceramic and before that, a children's book author. And then like, they're like an immunologist. What's going on? (laughs) But I I suspected there were a lot of things about your career. Well, and by suspected, I mean, I've talked to you before in our lives because we've had communications, made paninis together. You know, I, I felt that a lot of your work has a lot of similarities with creative work and includes a lot of creativity. But it sounds like something you have in common with people pursuing more of an art career is 
this value of originality. Obviously, like the ultimate goal is, and this is like, I'm going to sum this up in an overly simplified altruistic way, but like you're an immunologist, you're trying to help humanity have fewer diseases. Sure. (laughs) But I imagine some of it is just that you want to have your own career for yourself and define yourself and make a name for yourself. So academia is opaque and science is pretty opaque within that. And and I think that it can be confusing because we don't do a good job of explaining it, how mm-hmm. our economic structure works. I mean, basically, we are in the business of selling ideas. The best way to think of an academic lab is like a small business in a strip mall. So each one of these labs is its own independent small business. And that business has employees, it has material costs, and it also pays rent. The way that that rent works is essentially we are getting our funding from usually federal grants. So when we're applying for grants, we're applying for the money for us actually to pay our own salaries. So we're Mm. not paid for by the university. We are paid for through the university by the grants that we write and get. And so are any employees that we have, all the material costs, all of that, the university is is taking money off of the top. This may be annoying to you, and I don't know if it'll be annoying to the listener that I'm going to keep being like, it's like artists. But, <laughs> yeah. but the, what you described is 90% similar to how my wife, who is a public artist, uh, makes a living, which is that she's paid typically by nonprofits and organizations, but she finds the grants that they use to pay her. Yeah, exactly. In order to get those grants you need to have a brand, right? We're, we're sort of all in the business of brand building and not many mm-hmm. scientists, I think, are going to categorize it that way or think about it that way. But realistically, what's happening is, so the National Institute of Health is receiving tons and tons and tons of grant applications and they are evaluating those for a few things, certainly for the quality of the science, but they're also, and probably an even more significant component, I would argue sometimes than the ideas themselves is, is this the best person to be answering this question? So when you're developing your brands, you're not just giving the ideas that you want to test. What you're doing is you're saying, here is my evidence that I have taken money previously and I've turned it into real life knowledge gains. If you continue to invest in this line, I will continue to produce. Right, your portfolio. (laughs) Exactly. Now the trick there when you're becoming independent is why are they going to fund you and not your boss, Mm. right? The question becomes, how do you make yourself unique enough where when you're submitting those grants, they know that you are successful and you are literally the best person in the world (laughs) at answering that question. It is not unlike brand building. When you send your grants in, it is under your name. People will recognize that name. There's just a lot of thought that should go in to how you're going to differentiate yourself and how you're going to make yourself original enough where somebody sees that grant and says, well, we have to fund this because if we don't fund this proposal from this person, then this work won't get done because nobody mm. else is going to propose it. Wow, that's so interesting. And so, I mean, you know, I came in, I came into this with the the thesis that the, the work you do is creative in ways that overlap with people who you would more traditionally call a creative, like an, a professional artist or singer or, or chef or whatever, but this is sort of blowing me away how similar a lot <laughs> yeah, of this is. I mean, everything you just said might be surprising to people, like this idea that it is about the person in charge of the lab and, and their ideas and their quote-unquote brand, as you said, because I think in the present day, we like to think of scientists as sort of 
faceless like ants in lab coats like yeah, milling it's a about. monolith right as you know i've been pretty involved in pandemic research and you know yeah. covid-19 stuff and it it causes a lot of misconceptions about how this process all plays out and what can realistically right. be done and the question is who's going to do that work all of these small businesses are sort of operating in the academic area and they all have their expertise coming into the pandemic. And what you see in the immunology side is the pandemic hit. And just like other small businesses around the country, everybody shut down for a second and had that, oh my God, what's going on moment. Emery came back and said, hey, just how important is your work, right? (laughs) And so everybody had a real sort of startling moment where they realized that, you know, if they were working on fruit flies they might not actually be able to continue to let their graduate students come to the lab. And that turned out to be the case. So if you were an immunologist and you were working in an area vaguely related to human immunology, then you took that opportunity because... I mean, you literally need to pay your staff, right? Like people need to be doing work. Everybody took what they had and shaped that into a pandemic-related question. But all of us didn't like shut down and coordinate with each other and say, well, you know, okay, well, if you're going to tackle the mask problem, then I'll tackle the antibody problem. And then, well, you know, like there was no massive redistribution of the kinds of questions that we asked. We all just sort of did what we could. All of these people have specific training backgrounds and specific expertise they're bringing to the table. And if you try to push them too far away from where their toolbox can help them, then they just end up being ineffective. I mean, I think a big thing, this is something I'm so curious to get into with you, is something that's always been of interest to you in a way that sometimes seemed different to me than my traditional view of a scientist is this issue of science communication. And it kind of goes without saying, but the last three years, we've seen science communication good and bad (laughs) in the spotlight. And I guess the first question I have, because you were able to pivot to some work that was more directly related to COVID, when you watched sort of how science or the science of COVID particularly got communicated publicly by politicians, by officials, by the media. Was it ever frustrating? I mean, we all know, we've all been through the same thing. Things just constantly change. Is it frustrating when the speed of your work, which by nature has to be methodical because you are trying to, you know, prove things beyond a doubt and not just rush into having like results. Is it frustrating when the speed of your work can't keep up with how science is being communicated by the media by politicians and can't keep up with how politicized it gets. Um, yeah, it is. What was most frustrating to me, I think, wasn't so much that the research wasn't keeping up. It was that people that should have known better were not taking the time to explain how the scientific process works and how these Mm. ideas develop and how high our generalized failure rate is. It is well known among any uh, grad student in the sciences that a significant number of your experiments are going to fail at any moment, right? It is not a clean process. Very rarely do experimental designs work the first time. Very rarely does the first publication on something have all of the information you need to now understand that problem. Individual papers, individual people, individual ideas are not gospel. They are a very fluid thing. So what was more frustrating, I think, than the science not being able to keep up, because I actually think that the science went insanely fast for what we normally do, was the certainty at which individual ideas were then relayed to the public without 
any sort of explanation as to how the mm-hmm. process actually works. Because while scientists tends to be more comfortable with whiplashing ideas, yeah. um, the public certainly isn't, especially when no. you're asking people to change their entire lives overnight, right? If you don't carefully explain, like, we think that this is the right thing right now, but, you know, here are the ongoing processes that we're using to evaluate, and here's how things could change in the future. All that has to be the first conversation. And I think part of that is, you know, pandemic response, but part of that is the way that science is communicated generally to the public, Mm -hmm. right? We have a tendency not to hear from scientists until there is a massive breakthrough somewhere. And then, you know, hopefully it's the real thing. It's often not the real thing, but then we, you know, get this dose of like, oh, that's great. Science comes through again and you push. But what you don't realize is that lab beat their head against that thing for 10 years. Yeah. Finally got an experiment to work. And, you know, now we're talking about the result as if it was inevitable. Right. And really it's not. That lab has gone through a number of different thought (laughs) processes around that idea. And it may be proven untrue. And and the field will be comfortable with that. They'll be like, ah, oh, you know, that's a bummer. Uh, I thought that that was really cool. Yeah. And some careers will be ruined because they'll have based their science off those experiments, right? So, right. you know, it's, it's not mean, a, an easy hand wavy thing, but like it happens all the time and we need to communicate that better because it leads to this sort of like, I don't know, um, very confident projection of ideas when in reality, the community is much more uncertain. The contrast sometimes between what scientists that I knew would say to a news organization confidently versus Mm -hmm. the conversations they have in their lab meeting was insane to me. A good example of this is the bivalent vaccines. I write for an organization called The Conversation periodically. So I just published a piece in The Conversation talking about the bivalent vaccines. And one of the interests that I have as an immunologist is like how our last vaccination affects our next one, right? Mm. How good is your immune system at recognizing the difference between the last one and the next one and saying, oh, it's time to update. There's a lot of reason to believe that your immune system is actually not very good at those sort of like small updates in immune response. And this Mm. was something we knew, you know, a long time ago in the, in the pandemic, it's been true in flu vaccines in the past, that this might be a problem creating these small updates updates might not work quite so well as we want them to. When you say updates, is that what's being communicated to us as um, boosters? Yeah. So the the bivalent boosters are a combination of the original spike protein Mm -hmm. from the Wuhan virus, the original strain, and a spike protein from the new Omicron strain, one of the new Omicron strains, right? right? So it's a hybrid. So the question is, how good is your immune system at picking up the new Omicron strain when it already recognizes the original one. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it's not clear, right? It's not clear, but now we have the opportunity to study it and we will. And so the point of that piece was, hey, you know, this vaccine works in protecting people from getting serious illness, but it's not protecting people from getting sick in the way that we want it to. It's clearly right. not a panacea for stopping this pandemic. And this is a problem that we should be studying and we need to figure out how new technology will address this problem, right? And the group that I was working with were were very good and we were able to tune the message. Um, but there was a lot of fear, I think, that by publishing a piece that said the bivalent boosters were not going to solve uh-huh. the pandemic, that what we'd be doing is pushing the public in a direction when they don't fully understand the problem to just 
not go and get boosted. And I think that fear of being honest with everybody is exactly the wrong approach. It may be an unfortunate outcome based on where we are in our communication sphere, but I think that Mm -hmm. that outcome is directly related to our tendency to try to like handhold the public through non-nuanced ideas. I do understand that there's value in directed public messaging, but I think we need to understand too that people aren't dumb. And if we're effective, we can communicate some of that uncertainty in a way where when the first piece of data comes out that seems contrary to what you originally said, everyone doesn't throw up their hands and say, well, the whole thing was bullshit. Now we're not getting anything. You're hinting at this, but like, I'm a a coastal elite lefty (laughs) and we love to, and and I've I've had moments like this in the pandemic, I want to admit it, where like, it's so easy for, for us to point our fingers and just be like, those rednecks don't get science. A vaccine is a science needle and I trust science and they don't. So they're dumb. And I get that frustration, but then something to to compare it to like the creative work I do. I'm a director. And so a lot of my job is communicating things to animators and then animation gets sent back to me. And sometimes, and I, I don't think my animators would like to hear this, but sometimes my first gut reaction when something doesn't look right is to be like, they don't get it. And then I think what hopefully makes me a good director is that I take a breath and I go, wait, maybe I didn't communicate it clearly. One of the most important lessons I think that I learned in my PhD was actually exactly that. So you end up presenting your work all the time. You're constantly getting feedback on experiments that you're doing, and it comes up in in places like lab meetings, which are you know usually sort of informal weekly or bi-weekly gatherings of the people in your group. And everybody's sort of presenting their ideas and sort of spitballing, just bouncing them off each other. You know, you would go in, especially when I was a, a younger grad student, you go into these lab meetings and I was really excited about the data that I had and, you know, the ideas and how it all fit together. You know, you'd present them and get like a really unexpectedly bad response. The initial reaction, just like you're saying, is they just don't get it, right? right. Like they, they don't understand why this is so exciting. It happens in manuscripts too and uh, reviewer comments when you're submitting to journals and things and those reviewers tear your paper apart and you get these comments back and you're looking at them and you're like, like these idiots, right? Like how <laughs> they just didn't read the paper, right? Like if they yeah. had just read the paper, they would understand, right? And what you realized over the years and what I what I had to realize in grad school pretty early on was that criticism, I mean, it might be about the science, but the first thing that you need to check is how you're actually communicating those ideas to your audience, right? right. Because they're not in your head. They're not thinking about this stuff all the time. I think that there's a huge component of sort of introspection that needs to be done. I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up in a, in a culture where education, academia, medicine, science were all sort of respected. And so I baseline trust the institutions around science. I trust, to some degree, academics and doctors and scientists <laughs> and all that. Yeah. But I have to remember that a lot of people didn't grow up that way. I'm also a coastal liberal elite, grew up in upstate New York, as you know, <laughs> with similar sorts of environments. You know, I, I get on the wrong side of a lot of my friend groups for, for this as well. And But we all have institutions of trust mm-hmm. built up in our minds, right? Yeah. Now, it may be that your institution of trust aligns better with an objective truth in one area 
Right. But that doesn't mean that you have some unique insight into what the truth is. And as we were talking about before, we are all very compartmentalized, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Science, like I said, is a group of small businesses all with their own expertise. I definitely know more about B-cell responses to severe COVID-19 and how that translates into self-targeted attacks than a lot of people, uh, than most people within my field. Uh, we've, We've been really fortunate in making a lot of headway there. And I can speak confidently on that. But there are areas, even within pandemic science, I would not be the right person to ask, right? And I would be basing my answer off a question into uh, basically my trust of my colleagues, which is one level closer than most people have access to, to having somebody that's an expert, right? But that doesn't necessarily extend to all areas, right? Mm -hmm. That we would consider, you know, in our liberal elite bubble to be our (laughs) domain of, uh, of correct knowledge, right? Like I, my point is that yes, we absolutely can know things. Uh, we absolutely have made progress. We do know things, but we have to be really careful, um, when we slip away from how we're evaluating and just sort of go headlong into, well, my group believes this. And so I will confidently state that I agree with it as well. Um, Mm. I I think that we have to be more open and a little more introspective, uh, than that. We can't assume that there's an intelligence gap, for example, between the people that do and don't understand how this stuff works. And we have to think about it in a much more nuanced and complicated way than that. Right. Yeah. I mean, this kind of comes back to what you were saying earlier, which is it sounds like you feel we should be much more honest with the public from sort of scientific and government and media institutions, and that it's possible to do that while still being authoritative for things that are important, whether that is, you know, trying to get a certain segment of the public vaccinated or, or whatever we deem important. And, and maybe this is idealistic of me, but I think <laughs> that trust is one through honest and challenging communication. I think people are less trustful of people that say everything confidently and uh-huh. then sometimes are wrong than people that feel a little bit less cautious about the things that they're saying, still present them in a way that, you know, uh, makes it clear that they do have some reasonable understanding, but also leaves open the possibility that this is still an active investigation or areas that are exploratory. So, and I think that that's true, you know, sort of at the, at the larger global science communication level, but also interpersonally, I don't know about you, but I tend to trust people that are a little more open and vulnerable to having difficult, nuanced conversations conversations and and maybe public policy people would disagree with me but i think that we we overstepped that line. Uh, I think that we would gain more trust if we were more honest and open about the limitations of the things that we do because yeah. then when we say no we really know this, right? <laughs> somebody's yeah. somebody's going to trust that more because they know that you don't say that lightly, right? And you don't have that kind of whiplash, but you have to be careful not to overstep and portray it either as gospel or as this sort of like monolithic, everybody in science believes this. There's an aggressive conversation being carried out in the community right now about vaccine policy amongst pretty high level people within the policy and science world as to what we are actually trying to achieve currently in our vaccination strategy, whether that's realistic but there's a whole media base now around the you know discussion around 
vaccine policy that is going to be difficult to shift, right? And you could see, you know, the the articles that you'd expect to come up, you know, as for example, the bivalent booster data came out, it was almost formulaic. It was like the same article that had been written uh, about the original boosters. Yeah, um, yeah. You could just really replace the time on the top of the article, right? And it, And a lot of that is because you know, we get set into thinking that our egos are now, you know, wrapped up in this. And in some way they are, Mm -hmm. because what we've done is we put ourselves in a place where if we were wrong to speak so confidently before, we can no longer be trusted. And then the whole thing is for naught. I think that we have to have more foresight than that. I I, I don't think that this has served (laughs) us well. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, I would agree with you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We often have a discomfort around the humanity of the people. We don't like to think that soldiers might be afraid sometimes. We don't Mm -hmm. like to think that doctors mess up sometimes. And we don't like to think that scientists have doubts sometimes. You know, like we... Mm -hmm. We don't like that. Like, I even in this conversation am like, oh, careful, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird reaction, isn't it? And and so how do we get everyone more comfortable with that humanity and and while still pushing what I assume is your goal of increasing trust in your institutions? It's complicated to think about these institutions as a group of institutions made up by individual people. Uh Um, But I also think that I think that we have to move in that direction. Now, people worry about that because there's an authority that allows for effective use of those uh, social tools, right? I think that there's more than one way to build a trusting relationship that is effective. I think there's a lot to gain from an avenue where everybody sort of connects at a more human level and discusses the difficulties in all of this. And then the person that has more information has the freedom to sort of impart that information. I mean, I don't have to, we've talked much outside of this conversation about the kinds of organizations that demand enormous amounts of unadulterated uh, authority um, yeah. with very little clarity into into their private processes. It's not usually a recipe for people doing nice things to other people, right? Right, they, right. I much prefer a structure where, you know, we're trying to get people to buy in because they feel like the person at the front of the room has something valuable to say and is being honest with everybody else, right? I, I prefer that style of leadership to the sort of rigid, everybody's going to stand in this line because I know the line is the best thing to stand in, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, the only way to get past it is to start doing it, I think. People in my community need to find ways to reach out and communicate how this all looks, right? Like everyone should know, for example, how the basics of academic science, like the the economy of that. And it's actually right. something that I'm starting to talk more and more about and actually might be putting a book together at some point discussing some of those things. But that's not, that shouldn't be hidden information, yeah. right? It is a huge industry within the United States. It has huge public impact. It's a huge use of US tax dollars. There's no yeah. reason for it to be behind this like covered shroud. And I I think that as you get less protective of the inner workings of all of this, it feels very uncomfortable at first, but I... I don't actually think that it's that hard. I do think that one thing that we need to do is we need to start equipping people in these positions like mine 
with the tools to help them communicate. So you've got this really sort of regimented training structure built into science, very much around this, like, I'm going to just put my head down and produce this piece of information that's going to get me to graduate from your PhD. And, And all of our resources are really directed towards that. It's this very academically focused approach. We should be training them to do more than just experiments at the bench. And science mm-hmm. communication is a really, I think, important part of that. I think that we are missing out a huge opportunity when we're training folks that have expertise in this into how to communicate. I um, published a piece a while ago in, in The Scientist, which is a periodical that basically said when we were funding and considering NIH grants, one of the considerations that we should have in mind is the ability of that researcher to explain in lay terms how this is helping push the science forward in a way that is effective to the public and how it's going to be communicated. Do you have a a communication plan? And to be clear, I'm not expecting everybody to all of a sudden do what I do. I I think not many people have interest in writing so publicly and, you know, discussing things publicly. But I think that there are enormous missed opportunities to connect the work that we do here inside the ivory tower Mm -hmm. here at Emory to the people of Atlanta, right? I I think that there is outreach that's obviously available. uh, And I think that in no way is it currently incentivized. And in fact, it's disincentivized because the way that we train our scientists, if you're spending your time during work hours, putting together something so that you can go to your local church or you can go to your local community center, and talk about the benefit of vaccines that is taking away from the time that you could be doing experiments so that you can get closer to graduating. Mm. So we're actually discouraging people through our training process to develop those skill sets. And if somebody is competent in those things, it's often because they've taken upon themselves in their extra time to develop those skills. Right. Um, now, there are bosses out there that are very open to that kind of thing, but it's something that we should be incentivizing much more globally than we are because right now we don't have the core competencies in order to get our thoughts effectively out into the public in a nuanced way. At risk of wrapping up right after you, you know, posed a giant systemic issue that we, <laughs> <laughs> that we yeah, need yeah. to to be continued world. Yeah. Um, but we got to jump to our lightning round. Yeah. So our lightning round question, our first one is, what is something you learned the hard way that you would be happy for other people to just skip that part and learn the easy way just by hearing you say it? The criticism you receive on your work is not personal. You Mm -hmm. must separate your own view of your self-worth from the work that you do. Because especially when you're early on in training, the work that you do will progress and it is progressing independently of your own value as a human being. (laughs) I see far (laughs) too many graduate students get really shaken up and I was too uh, by a bad paper review, for example, or a bad reception at a lab meeting. Mm. And I, I think when you dedicate so much of your time and mental energy towards this creative process, to have somebody trash it feels like they are trashing you. And so as much as you can, separate your own self-worth and well-being from the work that you have chosen to do. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, easier said than done, but I absolutely. Fully, I fully yeah. Because we, we pour ourselves into it, right? But yeah. that perspective is really important because it allows your work to grow too, right? By keeping that a little bit distant or more at arm's length, 
you allow yourself the opportunity to do exactly what we were talking about before, which is realize that maybe you just haven't communicated it well. Mm. Maybe the ideas are there, but they're not landing the way that you thought. And it's very hard to see that if your own self-worth is tanking as you're seeing a negative review. Yeah, yeah. Whew, that's tough. That's a lifelong journey <laughs> for for artists and Close scientists alike. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna need a I'm gonna need a minute. Uh, and then, what is something you learned the hard way that you're really glad you learned the hard way? For you, there was no better way to learn it than to go through some tough stuff. Stuff fails. I've had two manuscripts, which you know that translates to like a year, year and a half's worth of work Mm -hmm. fall apart because some of the fundamental assumptions based at the bottom just don't hold. And at some point you realize the problem and you dig and the problem gets worse and worse and worse. And then at the end, you finally are just like, you know, this is not, this is no longer worth the time investment. So I'm just going to cut off the last year and a half of investigation of my life. And I'm going to acknowledge that this isn't a thing and I should go in a different direction. That happens all the time in science. I think it's something you have to go through to realize that it's not the end of the world. Um, I don't think that you can effectively prepare somebody for that. I'm feeling uncomfortable just hearing that. (laughs) Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And you've built up all these expectations around the people around you and you've talked about how exciting the project is. And so to like take that hit and be like, well, actually I was following following this thing that turned out not to be true the whole time. Yeah. Last lightning round question. What is your favorite thing to do that has nothing to do with science and science communication and your your work at Emory? So I would say that uh, all of my interests before five years ago have been wiped out by the fact that I now have three kids and they're uh, <laughs> all five and under. I would have said like rock climbing or getting up into the White Mountains or things like that. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. that would have been it. Um, but I, in truth, haven't uh, been to a rock wall in four years. And the last time I was on a real mountain was quite some time ago. But I think going and hanging out with my kids on the playgrounds can be a lot of fun. Like watching watching Charlie figure out how monkey bars work and like encouraging him to yeah. do it in different ways and like watch him start to, I don't know, you know, there's... There's a lot to be said for hanging out and watching kids rediscover the world in a way that uh, we haven't had to discover it in a long time. I think that there's there's a lot of fun in that. So I'd, I'd have to say right now, it's just sort of small outings where I get to watch them figure out new things and get excited about stuff that I used to be really excited about. And, you know, you can sort of vicariously get excited about again. I love that. And then the last question is just, um, how can people follow what you're working on or follow you? I know you've written for different publications. You know, you can certainly find me. If you if you Google Matt Woodruff Emery, uh, you'll, you'll find me. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if you put the conversation in there, you'll find some of the pieces that I've written. Right. And I the conversation be... is a science publication? No, it's a, oh. it's a general publication that focuses on taking academic voices and just pushing them into a public space where they can sort of help describe difficult topics from a more experienced academic voice. Um, So they tend to pair academics with editors that have more expertise in shaping uh, publicly facing stories. So I write fairly frequently for them every couple times a year, maybe. But to be honest with you, I'm a bit of a social media Luddite, as you know. Uh, (laughs) I intentionally stick my head in the ground. Uh, So I will keep plugging away to make the internet think about the things that I want them to think about, but not in a way that's rigorously followable. Um, So, you know, track 
track down the articles and maybe we can link to one or two as an example that sort of reflect the way that uh, I like to communicate with the world. Cool. Well, Matt Woodruff, Dr. Matt Woodruff, you know, when you're college roommates with someone, it's still weird to call them a doctor. It's weird to take on the mantle. Uh, and I, the the way I've dealt with that is mostly rejecting it. I <laughs> I refuse to use academic credentials through the vast majority of my correspondence. Can I can I call you Doc? Back to the Future style. That would be weird. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for chatting with me, and I'm so excited about this episode. I think it's gonna be a really unique one, and we'll have to have you back. Sounds great. Yeah, I look forward to hearing this one, and happy to uh, jump on in the future. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Okay, I hope you really liked my conversation with Matt Woodruff. Please do all the buttons that help us feed the algorithm the information that people like this so it can feed other people my podcast. Is that is is that a sentence? Is that how anything works? You know, like and subscribe and share share the little animations, share the episode with people who you think will be interested. Thank you to Adam Salzberg, my brother, for mixing this episode and getting it to your ears. The theme song is by Typist, Adam's solo project. If you liked this episode and want to listen to more episodes of I Loved This Conversation, another great one to pop over to would be the episode with Samantha Pollock that I did a couple weeks ago, because it's another conversation with someone who's passionate about changing the way that we communicate in order to build more trust. And in Samantha's case, that's in the marketing world, but I think there are some parallels um, in terms of honesty and transparency and all that. Okay, well, thanks for listening. We got another great episode in two weeks. Honestly, these conversations have been so good. And after I record them, I just get so pumped to get them out there. Like the next one is another great one. So I'm excited. I, I, I yeah, bye.